Welcome to the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast, giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubs. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Dr. Bubs Performance Podcast. Really excited today to have an absolute legend in the field of strength and conditioning research. He sold over half a million copies of his multiple books. Dr. Brad Schoenfeld is here. And in this episode, Brad dives into the ideal sets, reps, and periodization for adding lean muscle mass, as well as the minimum effective dose if you're crunched for time. He also shares his recent research as it relates to weight loss on multiple meal frequency. Does eating more meals throughout the day really help you to lose weight? As well as the benefits, or perhaps lack thereof, of morning fasted cardio. Brad also gives specifics on nutrition for hypertrophy, the importance of caloric intake, ideal protein amounts, and even going keto for hypertrophy. How does that impact your hypertrophy gains, as well as insights on fat intake and testosterone levels, and just so, so much more. It was a real honor to have Dr. Schoenfeld on the program today. Just a ton of knowledge bombs in this episode. So check out my layups at drbubs.com forward slash podcast, as well as the performance hacks. And uh, give this episode a couple of listens. It's a beauty, and I uh, hope you enjoy. I'm joined today by Dr. Brad Schoenfeld, PhD, an internationally renowned fitness expert and leading authority on body composition training, muscle development, and fat loss. Brad is widely regarded as a trainer of trainers and is a best selling author of multiple fitness books, including Max Muscle Plan, widely referred to as the Muscle Building Bible, and Strong and Sculpted a cutting-edge body sculpting program targeted to women. Brad has also authored the seminal textbook, Science and Development of Muscle Hypertrophy, the first text devoted to an evidence-based elucidation of the mechanisms and strategies for optimizing muscle growth. In total, Brad's books have sold over half a million copies. Brad is a lifetime drug-free bodybuilder, has won numerous natural bodybuilding titles, and currently acts as director of the Human Performance Laboratory at Lehman College in the Bronx, New York. Brad, really appreciate you taking the time out today. My pleasure, Mark. Listen, before we jump into uh, all things building lean muscle and fat loss, can you tell the listeners a little bit about how you got into exercise and then you know the research side of things? Yeah, I'm not sure we have time for the whole uh, for sure. long story. <laughs> the abbreviated but to, version? <laughs> to kind of give you the uh, truncated version, uh, I was a really skinny kid uh, coming out of college, was really unhappy with uh, my physique and uh, found resistance training it changed my life and uh long story short it uh led me on the path of wanting to pursue this as a career phenomenal um it's amazing how some of those roadblocks in life steer us in a direction that uh that really shape us right yeah now if we uh jump right in by talking strength and size uh, you know is there a real ideal you know repetition range or loading zone to to promote the greatest gains in terms of hypertrophy no, not really. It's uh, interesting. The Certainly when I was coming through uh, school, graduate school, uh, that's the way it was always taught, that your hypertrophy range was 6 to 12 reps, uh, 6 to 12 RM, and uh, you had your strength range, which for maximizing muscle strength, 1 to 5 reps, and your high reps are for muscle endurance. And uh, I've carried out now a number of studies along with some of my colleagues. And uh, really what we found is is that hypertrophy can be obtained over a very wide spectrum of loading zones. And that um, 
really there's not substantial differences in the hypertrophy that is obtained. So you can you can get big with lower reps, moderate reps, higher reps. There is some emerging evidence that uh, you can that different repetition ranges will target different muscle fiber types, specifically that uh, your higher reps will tend to target the type 1 fibers, the endurance-oriented fibers, and type 2 will tend to target the uh, type 2X fibers, which are the more strength-related fibers. But that's some more. St- those are really subtleties. It's not a either-or that one tar- one only gets, uh, let's say, lightweights only get the type 1s and heavy loads only get the type 2s. That's certainly not the case. They both will uh, produce substantial increases in hypertrophy across the spectrum of loading ranges. But for those who are looking to maximize muscle growth, it does lend credence to training across the spectrum of of loading zones. Yeah, that's really interesting because, I mean, I know that uh, general dogma still um, permeates today. And, of course, I work a lot with basketball players. Now, you know, in your experience or even in the research, are there, you know, whether it's football players using, you know, lower rep ranges, being able to uh, achieve some of the hypertrophy gains, whereas some of the taller ectomorph types, um, would they benefit more from various other ranges or is that a little too simplistic? Yeah, I think that's simplistic in the sense that um, just looking at someone is not necessarily indicative of their fiber typing. And I think even then, it's not going to play all that great a role. What I would say is that really, for if you're a football player, uh, your main goal is to, your primary goal would be to use hypertrophy from a strength perspective. So maximizing muscle strength. And um, that would, to me, dictate relying primarily on the lower reps, heavier loads, which do maximize strength. So there is a strength endurance continuum where your heavy loads, your one to five reps do maximize strength and your lighter loads do tend to maximize muscle endurance. And by the way, even on that, there is certainly a substantial amount of uh, strength that can be obtained with uh, light weights and muscle endurance from low weights. But if I'm a football player or I'm training a football player, I'm primarily giving them heavy loads. And if you're an endurance type athlete, uh, muscular endurance type athlete, then I would recommend focusing on the uh, lighter loads. Phenomenal. Now, if we talk, um, you know, in terms of sets, the amount of sets that someone needs to, to maximize some of these gains, if we think about first just a young athlete trying to increase strength and size, um, is there an ideal number of sets uh, for, per week? Well, it's not an ideal number of sets, but there certainly is a, a good amount of evidence that higher volumes will equate to greater muscular adaptations, particularly uh, hypertrophy. Strength is somewhat equivocal. There is, I think, it's more related to to hypertrophy than strength. But certainly, strength. Uh, the more you can practice a a movement, especially if the goal is to get stronger in that particular movement, the greater the transfer. So, uh, when you say, "Is there an optimal number?" that really is specific to the individual. Because, uh, first of all, there's an inverted U curve, meaning that you will continue to get benefits up to a certain point, and then not only will those benefits trail off, but after a certain point, you can become overtrained from it. So, they'll have negative consequences with too much volume. And uh, the the other important factor is that there's a huge inter-individual. Uh, variability in terms of the recovery response and thus what might be a good amount of volume for one person might be inadequate or too much for another and if someone's working you know if we, if we shift gears here a little bit and just talk about the average client who's working a desk job nine to five and they're trying to figure out you know 
how little do they have to do in a week in order to still make some gains? Is there is there sort of a minimum effective dose that people can shoot for um, per week? So we carried out a meta-analysis, and uh, our results showed that 10 a minimum really of 10 sets per week uh, was better than lower 10 sets per muscle group per week. So biceps, triceps, chest, whatever, uh, was better than lower volumes. With that said, that's where when it comes to practical application, um, it really comes down to what someone's preferences are and, and their goals and abilities. Uh, there is a compelling evidence that a hit hit routine, high intensity training, which is one step to failure, can promote substantial increases in muscle growth. Uh, so it really then depends upon what are if, if someone wants to maximize their gains. Yeah, then I'd say probably a minimum of around ten sets uh, per muscle per week is is in in that realm is what they should do. But if someone is limited on time, if they're they're saying, you know what, I'm good with getting 75% of my gains, and uh, which a lot of people probably are and should be, then substantially less volume is, is viable. That's a great take-home point because I know obviously for a lot of people, even just uh, you know, complaining about lack of time, even for young right. athletes, is a, is, a big, uh, is a big concern. Um, yep. Now, in terms of periodization, now I know there's obviously the, the linear undulating models. Um, certain strength coaches swear by certain models. Uh, what does the research say? And, and can you shed some light on that? Yeah, there really is no uh, concrete evidence that one model works better than another. And one of the things I always like to say about periodization, it is not a defined method. We tend to look at linear periodization and undulating periodization, but they're basic, really they're concepts. And how you carry out, if you gave 10 different tr uh, quality trainers a person and said, all right, uh, uh, give them a, uh, design a linear or a undulating routine, you're going to get 10 different programs. So it, it number one, uh, speaks to the fact that it's really difficult to study. So when you're looking at a research study, you're comparing one variation versus another, and there's other variations that might have had different results. And number two, uh, it's not necessarily even even not necessarily an either-or decision because you can combine aspects of linear and undulating periodization. Uh, there's something called step loading, which I incorporate a lot, which is uh, varying, uh, kind of undulating, but undulating within a given, let's say, repetition range, where if you're going to go 8 to 12 reps, you might do uh, or six to six to twelve reps. You might do six to eight reps one week, then eight to ten another week, and ten to twelve another week. That's still within a hypertrophy mesocycle, but you are undulating how it's carried out. So, re really, when we're talking periodization, I think uh, we get carried away. The essence of periodization is to manipulate training variables over time and in some type of generally systematic fashion to optimize a given fitness outcome. And, and the particulars of how that's being done, I think it does an injustice to try to pigeonhole them into these uh, n names, into these terms. Yeah, well said. Um, now, as we talk about even older athletes or just, uh, again, 50, 60 plus in terms of longevity, um, I know protein requirements increase as we get older. How about in terms of exercise? Is it uh, you know decreasing training volume? Is that... Uh, uh, a wise approach do people need um you know more sessions but less volume what, what's the ideal uh, approach as people get into their 50s 60s 70s 
Yeah, so it's a great question. I can give a general answer, but of course, the specifics, I, I have worked with uh, individuals that were in their 60s and even 70s who can really run circles around people in their 20s. Wow. Uh, but ge generally speaking, you do lose your, your recovery. You, you tend to need more recovery. Uh, there are joint issues, which uh, training more frequently can sometimes have negative effects on that. So yeah, usually you're going to have to uh, manage your volume and frequency to a greater extent uh, with people as they get older. And you recently uh, contributed to a piece there in Time Magazine. Now, you know, for myself in general practice, exercise is such a huge component in terms of helping people with uh, blood sugar management, overall health, cognitive function. Um, can you share a few of the uh, highlights there of the piece that you contributed to for Time Magazine, how exercise is so key for, for overall health? Yeah, really the essence of that article was that resistance training is going to affect almost every bodily system you have in a positive manner. And uh, we often think of uh, resistance training as uh, for jack bodybuilding or for maximal powerlifting to maximize strength. Uh, but there are so many, and, and certainly they, resistance training is extremely good at doing that. But it has so many other positive effects on your health, well-being, mental state, including improvements in bone density, uh, enhancements in cognitive function, reducing depression, uh, enhancing um, cell cellular health, reducing in, uh, chronic inflammation in the body. Uh, reducing the amount of uh, or, or in enhancing insulin sensitivity, so thus uh, reducing the risk of diabetes and, and insulin insensitivity. And I can go on and on. A better posture, uh, your skin looks better. I mean, there's just it's it's such a uh, such a terrific uh, modality, such a terrific um, strategy to incorporate into your life. And uh, ultimately, it really is the closest thing we have to the fountain of youth. Phenomenal. I'm glad to have experts like yourself uh, saying that so I can just play that back for all my, my patients. So much appreciated there. Um, yep. If we shift gears on the weight loss side of things, I know one of the most common um, refrains I hear from clients is that they're, especially clients who are, let's say, 20, 30, 40 pounds overweight, significant abdominal fat, and of course, the typical notion of increasing the amount of meals they consume in a day to boost metabolism and help them to lose weight, uh, oftentimes to limited effects. Can you share some of the recent findings on that topic? As far as meal frequency? Yeah. Yeah, there's very little to no evidence that uh, a high frequency of uh, eating is beneficial. Um, so more than, let's say, three meals, certainly more than four meals. Um, for From an anabolic perspective, I would say there is some evidence suggesting that three, three to four meals a day maximizes muscle protein accretion, so muscle protein synthesis, which is the precursor. It's, it's how you gain muscle. Uh, so for those looking to maximize muscle mass, I would say at least three square meals would be beneficial. Uh, certainly, there, it's not like you don't gain if you're eating less, but uh, you, you certainly will. But I, I think from an optimi uh, optimization standpoint, that's the case. As far as fat loss, um, really no good evidence that there's any number, specific number of meals that is better than another. Uh, a intermittent fasting protocol, which is really taking to the total number of meals and cramming them into a very short window, usually six to eight hours or so. So that's usually two meals, depending upon how it's structured, 
is a very fine way to has been shown to be a very fine way to lose weight. Not that it's better than eating more frequently, but certainly it's it's viable. Meaning that uh, really the frequency should come down to personal preference. And do you see? I mean, I often see people when they start out on various programs that there is increased meal frequency. The snacks might be, um, you know, eggs or protein shake or something like that. And then as the you know, as the weeks roll by, the months roll by, all of a sudden it might be a granola bar or a muffin or, you know, the quality of the snack tends to shift over. Um, mm. can, you, can you speak to how that would impact, you know, total caloric intake and their capacity to lose weight? Yeah, so of, of course, the, the one thing that you have to appreciate with nutrition is that uh, it, it's, food is just abundant around us. So people respond differently. Some people can have uh, greater willpower, uh, for lack of a better term, and uh, just stick with a diet and be very regimented once they you say, all right, I'm going to have five meals a day and it's going to be every three hours and they're setting their watch and they get a little alarm that goes off and boom, they'll bring Tupperware. I mean, certainly bodybuilders are the prime example of this and they, you could tell them to eat wheatgrass and, uh, and snow. Phenomenal <laughs> their, compliance. You know, right? that, that's their, uh, that's their meals and they'll pack that in Tupperware and, and they'll adhere to it. Uh, but most people, uh, don't have that type of uh, ability. And uh, that's why diets need to be uh, uh, specific to the individual. You have to look to uh, to promote adherence. Of course, adherence is, the, you can give someone the perfect diet if they're not adherent to it, does no good. So yeah, if you're gonna, it really comes down to calories in, calories out. Uh, now there are certainly, I don't want to minimize uh, macronutrients, uh, protein intake is extremely important there and higher protein intakes have not only been shown to uh, enhance um, retaining muscle mass, if not uh, improving it, but also uh, mitigating hunger, which is a huge issue of course, and, and, some, and many other factors. And of course there are uh, micronutrient considerations that are garnered in the types of food you eat. But from a pure weight loss standpoint, it does come down to calories and energy and energy out. And that means what you're taking in versus what you're expending. And you have to, uh, you have to manage that. If you don't, if you're going to be in a caloric surplus, you're going to gain weight. And if you're in a caloric deficit, you will lose weight. Yeah, I recently had on uh, Dr. Stefanke and, um, and he'd mentioned that, uh, you know, low carb diet is obviously a very popular way to lose weight and to get into a caloric deficit. And he's strongly believe that you know the increase in protein intake was one of the real driving factors behind the benefits yep. of a low carb diet would you uh, would you agree with that or yeah in comparison to normal with the way people normally eat yep. so uh, ketogenic diets are going to tend to have higher protein where there number one there's a very high thermic effect of food with protein and for those who don't know a thermic effect of food is the the calories that are expended in the digestive process and protein about 25 percent of the calories are ultimately burned off whereas in carbs they're six percent or seven percent fats they're less they're two percent in some studies uh, so you're going to just in that respect uh, lose a lot of calories uh, it's extremely difficult to uh, to gain weight eating protein so uh, what, what i would say with ketogenic diets that yeah that's part of it and the fact that the uh, higher protein tends to promote greater satiety makes them eat less food so uh, and there, there are some other research showing that uh, ketosis in itself might be uh, might enhance satiety as well that's not been well established, but uh, I, I would certainly say that the higher protein intake is a primary driver. And look, the majority of the vast body of literature shows that on a 
equated when you control the calories and when you control the amount of protein in diets, there is no difference in weight loss between ketogenic diets versus low fat diets. They're really, uh, they're the amount, the ratio of carbs to fats means little to nothing, uh, provided that your protein and your calories are equated. Really interesting. Um, if we stay on this uh, weight loss track, I know you've written um, around morning fasted cardio. It's a you know, common strategy these days. People using get up in the morning, go out for a run, cycle, train even. Um, is that an effective strategy for, for fat loss? Does it change if someone's, again, 20, 30 pounds overweight versus someone who's active and very fit? Uh, well, I can't really speak to very fit or certainly when you say very lean, but for the populations, the general population, it is not a, an effective uh, strategy. Not It's not necessarily a, ne- a bad strategy, uh, but there's no evidence that, uh, that it has any beneficial effects in practice. Uh, I've actually carried out a, uh, a controlled study on the topic, and we found no differences between the fasted versus fed group. Um, whether it might have effects, I know it's been speculated by uh, some of my colleagues that perhaps if someone is very lean, uh, sub 10% body fat, that there might be, uh, it might help to lose those last, that last pound or two. I can't say with any confidence one way or another, I, I would tend to doubt it, but that's something that would need to be studied. But as a general strategy, it, uh, it's not. It really does not uh, matter whether you're fasted or fed. And again, that's kind of cool because we do what you do what you prefer. Some people like training fasted, then go for it. Others don't. Then have a have some pancakes. For sure, very well said. Um, now, if we circle back to nutrition for hypertrophy for gaining size, I know that energy balance is so critical for a lot of the uh, molecular pathways that support hypertrophy. Can you share some of the uh, some of the insights there? Well, you need to be in a to in the early stages of training. You can actually have what's called body recomposition, where you lose fat and gain muscle at the same time. You still will not maximize either one or the other. Or if you're going to try to lose more weight, it's going to really uh, mitigate the amount of muscle that you can gain. So you might be able to eke out a little bit of muscle growth, which has been shown. It's been shown in my lab, but you won't maximize it. And really, for maximizing. Um, either one if you want to maximize fat loss really your goal should be to hold on to muscle as much as you can and certainly for maximizing uh muscle growth you need to be in a caloric surplus meaning that you need to be uh taking in more calories than you expend and the goal generally should be to do that while trying to minimize fat gain uh the old bulking and cutting strategies tend to result just in a lot of muscle loss when you're cutting down. So uh, the best way, some people call it a clean bulk, but to try to, uh, you're, you're going to gain some fat. That's really inevitable when you're looking to maximize muscle growth, but uh, you can do it in a way that when you actually start to cut down again, you won't lose as much muscle, and that involves not gaining as much fat. And is there a general range for people to shoot for if they're looking to get that energy balance above uh, <sighs> their, their day-to-day? Yeah, somewhere between two to four hundred calorie uh, surplus. It can be depends on the person. I, hard gainers sometimes need even more, but usually in that two to four hundred calorie surplus range is a good uh, target to shoot for. And that's a really common one. We have all you know our young athletes uh, start at the age of thirteen in terms of the national team, and of course they're playing AAU basketball in the summertime, and it's almost like sport to twelve months of the year, and to find enough time to 
to eat even at a young age is always a struggle. So um, good to reinforce that getting getting the calories in is, is so crucial. Um, if we jump, yeah, and by the way, yeah. I, when I give uh, guidelines like these, they always are just general guidelines, and For you sure. need to you use that as a starting point, and then you have to adjust based on personal results because people respond differently. 100%. Yeah, that 30,000-foot view is, is pretty helpful for folks. Um, now, if we come back to that idea of ketogenic diets and hypertrophy training, um, you know, a lot more people diving into that side of things. Is there equal benefits there to, to a traditional um, nutrition approach for, for gaining size? Um, so the body of literature at this point would suggest – that uh, ketogenic diets are detrimental to maximizing muscle. Certainly, you can gain muscle on a ketogenic diet. There's no question of that. But if you're, again, looking to maximize it, the ketogenic diet is a catabolic diet, in essence, or tends to be. Uh, so it's – and look, and carbohydrates are uh, – have – uh, hypertrophic qualities to them. Number one, when your gl uh, glycogen levels are low, it uh, increases activation of a enzyme called AMPK, which is a catabolic enzyme, which isn't a good thing when you're looking to uh, gain muscle. And certainly you're going to rely on any more high volume type of uh, resistance training program, you're going to rely on glucose uh, to fuel the workout. So um, bottom line is, is that I would say uh, you would certainly not be doing yourself any harm by uh, having a, a at least a moderate carbohydrate doesn't mean you have to eat a high carbohydrate diet but being in ketosis i would say is not generally a good idea there is a recent study that seems to show that you might be able to get some uh, fairly equal benefits i'm very skeptical of the study itself in terms of the way the, some of the uh methodologies in that study but in truth we don't have a lot of research on those with uh, training experience who followed it and so we have limited research and i can only say at this point with what the literature shows and what generally has been known through the field uh, empirically through the field uh, that would be my my uh, my uh, answer at this point but I reserve the right to change my opinion in the future should sure. new evidence present itself. Absolutely. And you know, one of the things that surprised me in your book, Science and Development of Muscle Hypertrophy, was this idea that uh, you know, we know that low-fat diets can often contribute to T-levels reducing, but this idea of very high-fat diets as well uh, being mm -hmm. linked in some studies. Can you, can you share some insights there? Yeah, so um, testosterone. Now, I, I will say this with the caveat that the amount of, of – um, disturbances, if you will, with T ratios are not all that great. So I'm not sure, we, we, when I say I'm not sure, really there's no good literature to guide us in this fashion as to really what effect that has. So a general, the, the general consensus is that normal, quote unquote normal, testosterone levels are in the 300 to 800 nanogram per deciliter uh, range. So 300 to 800 within that range. So if you go, let's say from 500 to 400, uh, which technically that's a large drop, that's a 20% reduction in testosterone. I have not seen any evidence that that would have a negative effect on anabolism. Now, doesn't I? I something I wouldn't want, you know. And without knowing, I would say it's not a good thing. But uh, how, how it affects you, I'm just not clear. But yeah, fat, uh, the consumption of dietary fat is related to, um, to your T levels and, and other hormonal levels as well. 
And um, low-fat diets certainly have negative effects on testosterone. When I say low-fat, usually we're talking less than 20, 15% or so, so very, really very low-fat diets. And when you're taking in a lot of saturated fat, it tends to decrease uh, cellular signaling capabilities, uh, whereas your unsaturated uh, fats enhance cellular signaling. So if you're taking in a lot of saturated fat, at least there is a uh, there is some evidence that it can have a negative effect on testosterone and, as well as some other hormonal uh, markers. So some people should watch their uh, the morning fat bombs there in the coffee with the butter and the MCTs and everything else <laughs> might be uh... – Perhaps yeah, well, I'll go on record in saying there is really zero evidence to support uh, that that type of strategy, the buttered coffee strategy, and that's it's gotten a lot of hype, and I think it's unfortunate how uh, gimmickry can sell. Absolutely. Now, uh, another common thing that we hear about, obviously, in terms of gaining size is this idea of really promoting a big insulin release after training, and we're going to go looking for things that help to spike insulin levels in terms of our meal choices. Um you know, what does a regular meal do to, to insulin? Is, is there a, a point or a plateau in which the benefits, um, you know, for hypertrophy would would plateau or even negate? Yeah, so about two times resting levels seems to be the threshold physiologically. Without taking, if you, obviously, if you're going to take illegal insulin, which I never would recommend to anyone. It's extremely dangerous, but those are practices that some bodybuilders might use. But in, in a in a endogenous fashion, meaning within the body uh, from a normal physiological level. Uh, it's important to realize, first of all, that insulin really is not an anabolic hormone, at least at physiological levels, but rather an anti-catabolic hormone. So it actually, its benefit is to prevent protein breakdown, really not to increase muscle protein synthesis to much of an extent. And um, you're normal, as long as you're not starving yourself, if you're eating regular foods, you'll get insulin spikes that will, uh, enhance, that will be enough to, to promote any anti-catabolic effects that are necessary, providing you're eating enough meals throughout the day. Again, th if you're having three regular meals throughout the day, there shouldn't be any issues as far as that goes. So the athlete doesn't need to chase the large soda and uh, no and ice cream and everything else afterwards it, to get that uh, maximize that spike. Exactly. Terrific. Well, if we shift gears to the the protein front, which is obviously um, heavily talked about, now if we just talk about this idea of you know the amounts of protein through the day, you know some of these small pulses versus regular feedings versus some people will now eat just one very large meal in the, in the evening afternoon. Um, you know, what do we know there around trying to maximize hypertrophy? Is there a better strategy than others? Well, as I mentioned, there is some, at least a very strong logical rationale for spreading out protein intake across three meals a day, perhaps four, um, because the anabolic effects of a meal last approximately five or so hours. So you figure if you're going to get uh, protein, let's say 7 o'clock in the morning, 12 o'clock at night, 5 o'clock at night, and maybe then another one before you go to bed might be a – there's actually some research showing there might be a benefit there. That would keep your muscle protein synthetic response uh, elevated throughout the day. How much that's going to affect the average person, probably not a heck of a lot. But if you're someone who wants to maximize muscle growth, there could be some additional benefits there. Uh, the thought that you can have one large protein meal uh, 
is somewhat uh, because of that is somewhat misguided and that's kind of goes with um what some of the intermittent fasting protocols we use uh just because you're going to be catabolic the large amount of the rest of the day and that probably isn't a great strategy for those looking to maximize muscle yeah it's definitely something i've seen a little bit more now with you know a variety of athletes hockey players etc who are diving into intermittent fasting in the off-season training camps and in-season and so it's uh yeah, it definitely doesn't seem like the ideal strategy for athletes trying to recover and maintain that uh, analysis. Your thoughts on, on the IF and, and athletes? Um, well, it I kind of goes along with what you said. Uh, I, it generally isn't the greatest strategy, particularly you, uh, depending upon what their uh, training schedule is like. Often they're doing two-a-days, and it's usually you want to have glycogen repletion after a first training session and that can be difficult so i guess it depends how you structure it but uh would not be my first choice for a an athlete gotcha now on in training camps and even just athletes throughout the season or pe- folks who are um training a lot themselves you know discomfort pain you know the use of you know NSAIDs, ibuprofen to help take the edge off and all of a sudden you might get some guys even taking them before they train you know what's that doing to the adaptive response to exercise is there a time and place for it and can we get too much of a good thing it's it's an interesting topic. Um, the way the literature looks at this point is that it probably is specific to the age group that you're looking at. Age group a lot, and then the specifics, even with younger, could be specific to what the person is going through, and I'll explain that in a minute. But I want to preface it by saying that the occasional use of NSAIDs, there's really no evidence that that will have a negative effect. So if there's a, you, you had a hard workout and you want to down some NSAIDs just to to have less soreness or whatever, that's really not going to affect uh, affect you negatively. Gotcha. But chronic, so really where I want to focus is on the chronic use, where people are taking these over the course of months. Uh, in elderly subjects, interestingly, there is uh, evidence that it has positive effects on muscle group, positive effects. Wow. And that may be due, it's speculated, it may be due to the fact that elderly people tend to have high chronic levels of uh, inflammatory bodies. Uh, so there, there, this chronic, infla- chronic inflammatory um, environment is uh, counteracted by NSAIDs. And thus that may be driving a greater hypertrophic response because there is certainly a lot of evidence that high levels of chronic inflammation will, have, will be catabolic and thus impair muscle growth. Whereas younger people who generally do not have a inflammatory environment, chronic, usually they have low levels of uh, chronic inflammation, there might be some negative effects due to a impairing of um, satellite cell activation. And satellite cells, just to give the short course on it, uh, donate their nuclei to, uh, they're, they're basically quiescent, they're pre uh, they're, they're kind of stem cells, muscle stem cells that donate their nuclei to muscles when needed to allow the muscle to synthesize more proteins. Nuclei are what synthesize more muscle proteins uh, within the cell, muscle cells. And uh, by impairing that, and there is some evidence that uh, NSAIDs may impair the satellite cell response, this may ultimately have negative effects in younger people while having positive effects in older people. And that's a topic that really is still sorting itself out from a research standpoint. Wow, that's really interesting in terms of the elderly population. Uh, now, I know I want to respect your time here, Brad. Um, I know you travel a lot with all the speaking engagements, um, UK, Europe, etc. 
Do you have any you know personal strategies that you use on the road to to keep moving and get some some time efficient exercise in? Uh, well, I, I always just try to get at least uh, one or two sessions. You can maintain muscle over you know somewhat short periods without really doing much once you've accumulated it. So I always try to find either a gym, and even if I don't, I can do uh, just the cool thing we talked about with high rep training. I could do a lot of push-ups and uh, chins, just finding some place in a park or something where you can at least get the major muscles trained uh, using some rider load strategies. But there's all, really almost anywhere I go, there'll be some type of gym that'll have at least some weights or machines that I can get a decent workout in, or even if it's less than decent, good enough where it doesn't impair me. And then when I come back, I, I hit it hard. Awesome. And you know, can you tell us a little bit about your morning routine when you are, uh, you know, in the day to day? You know, are you a coffee drinker? How does your morning uh, look like when you're when you're gearing up for a day's work? Yeah, I always start my morning off with a uh, major cup of coffee. But yeah, I get up early. I'm an early riser. I find that I get my uh, work done better. The bulk of my work, so I try to really make sure I get anything important done so that it doesn't uh, things don't crop up where I'm not able to do it later and I'll spend the first few hours uh, like I get up usually around 5.30 in the morning and uh, spend the first few hours getting work done at my computer, a lot of writing done uh, with a nice cup of coffee and a good breakfast. Uh, I walk my dog in the morning. I have a beautiful pet bulldog, Winston Churchill Schoenfeld who who I uh, get, that's how I get my cardio and then really it depends on the day. I'm uh, it's it's just so variable. You know, I have so many things going on. So I'm at school. I'm doing research, teaching. Uh, have other engagements that I tend to. Uh, so just a lot going on, and really everything then diverges from there. But my morning is always pretty much the same, and it's uh, several hours of paperwork, answering emails, and and other such duties. Nice. Well, coffee exercise and uh, getting outside sounds like a pretty good way to start the day. Now, uh, yep. last question for you, kind of a 30,000-foot view. Um, you know, If you had to give yourself some advice, uh, if you look at yourself 10 years ago and you had to give yourself some advice, what advice would that be? That's a great question. I would probably tell myself um, to be more patient. I uh, tend to want things to go at a 100 miles an hour, and um, sometimes you can make mistakes along the way when you do that. And um, I think it doesn't really, it pays to have some perspective looking back. So I think having patience would probably be the, um, the most salient advice I could give myself now. And I do, I do try to adhere to that, although it's very hard. <laughs> sure, no, that's great, great advice. Uh, well, listen, Brad, I thank you so much for for taking the time out today. I mean, your work's phenomenal. It's definitely a major part of our uh, paradigm in terms of nutrition at uh, Canada Basketball. Where can people stay connected with your work, and where can people pick up the uh, phenomenal books? Yeah, so I have a uh, a website called lookgreatnaked.com. That's look great naked not look good naked, which is apparently some other type of site that I don't recommend people check out. Um, And I have a blog that I do post on. I haven't unfortunately posted as much as I like recently. I'm all over social media, so they can search me on Facebook, uh, Twitter, and Instagram, the primary ones I use. And I have a couple books out, as you mentioned, or actually three of them, but I have a textbook called The Science and Development of Muscle Hypertrophy, which is uh, really my my pride and joy. It's something that uh, really the culmination of my career as a educator. 
and uh, it's a it's a scientific read, so you need at least some background there. But if you really want to know the scientific basis of muscle growth uh, and, and the practical implications, then that's a really good read. And I have two consumer books, a uh, book called The Max Muscle Plan, another called Strong and Sculpted. Both of them just lay out different uh, plans for optimizing body comp. Yeah, phenomenal stuff. So many clinical pearls. Uh, we'll definitely include all those links uh, and a podcast summary in the show notes at drbubs.com forward slash podcast. Thanks, Brad, for coming on. Thanks, everyone else, for tuning in. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear from you on Facebook or Twitter at DrBubs. Use the hashtag DrBubsPP. If you enjoy the show, please head over to iTunes, take a few minutes to subscribe, and leave us a review. Thanks again for listening, everyone, and we'll see you all next week. The Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcasts.